Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Morning, church. Our Bible reading today will be taken from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. At the end of this reading, I would say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Ruby. Thanks be to God. And thank you all for coming. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see us all. And a special welcome to anyone joining us for the first time. We're really glad that you joined us in... Um, in I can't say my favorite series this year, but I would say a really important thing that we've been looking at. We've been looking at um, prayer, but we call the series Talking to Our Father because it's built on this model prayer that was just read, and we start with Our Father. So welcome, welcome. Um, is anybody feeling cold? Are you feeling cold? Uh, you're feeling cold. Well, the reason you're feeling cold is because the weather is hot. Right, and you could have done something about it. You could have got yourself a cup of tea. Um, so I know as some of you are asking this morning, what am I having? Um, so this one is uh, the, the, the first service, because the first service people, I don't care too much for them. I gave them, the one I had there was black tea that was just with an infusion of blackberries and raspberries. Uh, but this one, this one is, um, I kept this one for you guys. This one is black tea and it has, it's a mixture of five spices. Five spices, ginger, cinnamon, cardamom, cloves, and last one, wait for it, pe uh, pink, pink, pe well, close, pink peppercorns. That's for you guys. Oh, that feels warm. You know, nature is a very good thing. Um, reminds us of tea, but reminds us of other things. I'm reminded of a particular individual um, as we enter into the sermon because I want you to understand something that as we looked last week on adoration, when we talked about hallowed be your name, it was that we saw something about God that caused our names to fall in shadow in the light of his name. And so we had nothing else to do than to adore you see, the purpose of adoration of God isn't just to stay and see him there. The purpose of adoration is eventually to enter into communion with him. This is the deepest form of prayer. You see, adoration is the loftiest form 
But communion is the deepest form of prayer. If I may start on maybe a more, I don't want to say accessible note, but if I asked you who was the biggest pop star, Western pop star in the 80s, who would that be? Who? Huh? Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's not a trick question. There was no, there was no, there was no, it's Michael Jackson, all right? Now, but you know, in this church, we, we are not, uh, we don't just put men up there. It's an equal opportunities church. So let's, let's go with the female version. Who was the biggest female Western pop star of the 80s? Sting? Uh, I know we have to. Yes, in the black world and a bit in the white world. There was somebody that was bigger than Whitney Houston. Madonna. Madonna was just a bit bigger. And Madonna not just loved tea, she loved nature. I'll tell you why. She, there was a particular song. She said, she said this, she said, we are living in a material world and I am a material girl. She was the material girl. You know, and she had the material look to back it up. She had the material look to back it up. Where is she? Oh, so, yes, they forgot it. The material look. This is with the lollipop and everything. By the way, this is short, so I had to get a cleaner version of Madonna's looks of the 80s. And it reminds me of a song that she said, her love for nature and the material world. It, she, I don't know whether it's fictitious. She thought about a place, and that place, probably, it exists in California. So maybe she was using it fictitiously. And when it, the place was called San Pedro. And the way she started the first verse was that she dreamt of San Pedro. I don't want to talk about the first verse. Because it moved from dreaming about San Pedro and falling in love with San Pedro. Said, I fell in love with San Pedro. Warm wind carried on the sea. He called to me. What was San Pedro talking, saying to her? Well, he had to speak in Spanish. His name is San Pedro. He said, Te dijo te amo. Which means, he says, I love you. <laughs> Material world is selling her. I love you. And so she also loves him back. And so she said, that, Ah, I wish this thing won't last. I wish this thing won't pass. She said, I dreamt that the days will last. They went so fast. And then in the chorus, she then expresses her love for this material world. Tropical, the island breeze, all of nature, wild and free. This is where I long to be. Don't complete it. I'm not complete. I didn't ask you to complete it. You see, we're in church, people. We're in church. But then, this material girl, the material world, the 80s moved to the late 90s. And all of a sudden, she didn't look the way she used to look. She looked something like this. And that. Question. What happened? What happened to her material girl? Because she doesn't look very material now. She looks actually a lot more spiritual. You see, she had converted to a Jewish form of spirituality. It was called Kabbalah. But something she found that the material world could not give her, that she was looking for the world beyond the material. What was going on? 
And once you contemplate on that, let me introduce you to another person on the other spectrum of Madonna. His name is Thomas. Thomas was born, a brilliant kid, born into a wealthy home. And so eventually, when he went to university to prepare as a monk, he got involved with a new Christian move, as often happens when people go to universities. I'm speaking to some of you. You know who you are. Now, he got involved and converted to that move against his father's wishes. And so what did the father do? He did what every responsible father would do. He told his brothers, kidnap him. They kidnapped him. And they put him in the family castle until he changed his mind. After one year, he didn't change his mind. So his sister, oh, this, their family was wonderful. His sister freed him. And after she freed him, he left and ran all the way to Paris. And he studied, to the University of Paris, and studied under a great theologian at the time who introduced him to the works of the great Greek philosopher called Aristotle. And if you know anything about Aristotle, he was a pioneer of logic. And so Thomas became a logician, but he was a Christian theologian as a logician. He became a professor of theology, bringing his Aristotle Aristotelian logic into the Bible. When he did his theology, he called it the science of God. And he wrote two major works. One was against non-Christian faiths. He called it the Summa Contra Gentilis. That's Gentiles. But the one that was an overview of the Christian faith, he called it the Summa Theologica. Over 750 years till today, people are still reading the works of Thomas so you won't accuse Thomas of being somebody very spiritual. No, this man needed to see things systematically. He was a logician to the highest degree. But in the height of his scholastic work, something happened to him that was a defining moment in his life. Almost 750 years to this day, on December 6th, or rather just over 750 years to this day, on December 6th, 1273, he went into daily mass as he often would. But something happened to him in that service, almost like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He encountered something of the divine. And after he came out, he couldn't talk. People were talking to him, he just wouldn't talk. In fact, the thing that happened to him stopped him from doing his scholastic work. This got his very good friend and secretary, Reginald de Piperno, he got him so worried that he kept asking him, why would you do this work? Why would you do this work? He hardly responded. Then his sister got involved. And at some point, Thomas decided to respond to them. This is why I cannot do any more scholastic work. Listen to what he said. He said, all I have written to me seems nothing but straw compared to what I have seen and has been revealed to me. It was a very defining moment in his life because three months later he died. How is it that a material, free, loving lady at the height of her popularity says that all that this nature, wild and free, that I looked for could not give to me? I'm looking beyond nature. She was seeking for it. She didn't find it. How is it that a man who devoted himself to a systematic, logical thinking of the Bible at some point encountered something he was not prepared for that made all his work? up until that point seem like straw. I'll tell you what it is. 
there is an accessible part of the knowledge of God. We get it through the material world, we get it through the theoretical world, or in our own Christian faith, we'll call that the doctrinal world. Those are really important. They must inform our prayers, but they are not enough if we are going to encounter the one who sits on the cherubims. In other words, God has revealed himself to make himself known, but God is not. You can't reduce God to a set of descriptions. You can't just reduce God to finding him in nature. Please don't get me wrong. As I said, those things are important. But God wants us to know him beyond the material, beyond the doctrinal. Those ones set up the boundaries for us to experience God in this world that has been so abused but the abuse of a thing does not invalidate its proper use. There is still a mystical aspect of experiencing God. So that when we say these words, our Father, it's not simply a statement of doctrinal fact, even though it is. It points us to the doctrine of adoption. I know that. But it is a profound declaration of the deepest longing of the human heart. What is that? To commune and to be united with our maker, our redeemer, our father. So if you are Thomas here today or you are a Madonna, can I say that being in God's presence and communing with him in prayer is the deepest and the most rewarding thing that you can do. It is the place you want to be to experience the greatest transformation. I just want to be where you are. here to commune with you, to feast with you one-on-one, -on -one. surrounded by your glory in his presence. 
There is fullness of joy. And on his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where I always want to be. I just want to be. I just want to be with you. And so, Lord, by your gracious, tender love, bring us into this presence. Lord, we want to experience what Madonna was searching for, what Thomas experienced. We want all of you, Lord. We want to see you face to face. We want to feast and dine with you. We want to enjoy, you, oh God, the pleasures on your right hand forevermore as we commune with you in a deep way. Lord, we look to you, our Father. Be with us. I just want to be I just want to be with you. Thank you very much, music team. I'll need you later, so don't be too far away. So I'm going to try today, I'm going to try, because words have their limits, to try to prime from the scriptures to show us what communion is, prayer at its deepest, not just to show but for us to practice it together. Because prayer is not really something that you should just be taught about. Prayer is something that we do together. Maybe I should first start with the effect of communion. This a transformation that comes. A couple of years ago, by a couple of years, I mean probably late 90s, but much more early 2000s, there was a teaching, a doctrine that was sweeping through the Pentecostal church. Both in Nigeria and the United States, you can ask, you can find out, you can debate as far where it first came from. If it's a bad thing, it came from the United States. If it was a good thing, it came from Nigeria. That's the way it works. Shoot me. And the name of the doctrine was, it was just termed the Ye are God's doctrine. How many of us remember something like that? Okay. You see, the Ye are God's doctrine, it got people a little bit, should I say, uncomfortable, and it got some people really high up there. You see, it was a doctrine that came from Jesus' words in John chapter 10, which was all Jesus quoting from the Psalm, Psalm 82, where there is a place where it says, You are God's. And so the way it was expressed in different places, you know, led to different reactions. I remember, I can't forget one particular popular American preacher, I shall not call his name to protect his guilty. He had a almost simplistic way of putting that. I'm going to paraphrase it because he was thinking about Genesis 1.26 and he was like, man, I've stumbled on something here. Because in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make mankind in our image. And so the preacher said something like this. When dogs meet together, with dogs, they produce what? When horses mate together with horses, they produce what? When cats mate together with cats, they produce what? So when the Godhead therefore said, let us make mankind in our image, what would they produce? They, he dropped the mic at that point, like, settled. And even though it was probably insufficiently thought through and even more crudely delivered, Therefore, I'm not endorsing it in its entirety. What I do want to say to us as we examine it is that don't totally dismiss it. Because the truth is this, that God had always, and we see this in the Bible, 
he's always held out the promise to his people of wanting to transform them to the zenith of glory. What is that zenith of glory? Now, don't listen to my words. Listen to the man whom Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says, he has given us very great and precious promises. The King James says, exceedingly great and precious promises. He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, the divine nature. He wasn't saying the divine will participate in the divine nature, but that you may participate in the divine nature. You see, old theologians of yesteryears, they knew exactly what this was. In fact, they called it the deification or the divinization of man. Kind. And one of the greatest theologians of all time, an African bishop in the 4th century called St. Athanasius, when talking about the incarnation of Christ, that is, God becoming a human being, here's what he said. He had this popular quip. He says, for the Son of God became man so that men may become God. Now, some of you are uncomfortable as they were, uncomfortable in the early 2000s. Let me allay your fears. Because I have those fears too. You cannot become God as God. Why? Because if you are God today, it's because you've always ever been God. If you can become God, that means that there was a time when you weren't God and that means you can never be God. God is eternal. Athanasius knew this. You see, what Athanasius was referring to wasn't being God as God, but he was talking about being God-like. Another theologian, a guy called Gregory Palamas, he was a Byzantine Greek uh, theologian in the 14th century. He said he'd made a distinction between the incommunicable essence of God. This is what makes God God and doesn't make him anything else. They are incommunicable essences of God. That is what cannot be communed. If it could be communed to you, you would have already had it from eternity and you would have been God. But whilst you have the incommunicable essence of God, you have the communicable energies of God. And the communicable energies of God come from the communicable, incommunicable essence of God. If I can help, it will be like the sun and the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun come from the sun. They are virtually united and we receive the rays of the sun. And the rays of the sun transforms us, whether it makes us hot, whether it helps us with plants and all of these things. It transforms us. But in receiving the rays, we don't become the sun. Do you understand me? And so what Peter is getting at, what Athanasius is getting at, what Gregory Palamas is getting at, and maybe what some of those guys were trying to get at, but sometimes they didn't say very well, is that God is trying to glorify us by communicating things of himself to us. Communing. So where do we start to experience that? We experience that in what we can call face-to-face -face communion prayer. Face-to-face. Why face-to-face? -face? It's because when we talk to people, we are not just listening to what they say. You know that. We also start to examine their faces. Why? Because we are trying to merge what they say with how they look because the face also communicates truth. It communicates truth about what that person means when they say what they say, what that person feels about what they say. And maybe... 
what that person feels about you. This is why it's very difficult for us, for me, to be having a meeting with somebody on Zoom and I will see a name and I hear a voice. The problem is not that I'm not communicating. It's just that I feel a bit disconnected from that person. I feel less communal because I can't see your face. That's why we struggle sometimes. I don't know if you ever encounter people who, when you're talking to them, they don't look directly at you. The problem is this, it's that you feel not as fully connected. You feel less communal. Why? Because communication is done with our mouths and with our faces. The mouth speaks to the ear of the other person, but the face communes with the face of the other person. And when that person gives something on their face, it is transferred to you and transforms you. Like if the person frowns, you either frown back or you are scared, depending on who the person is. If the person smiles, you weren't smiling before, but now all of a sudden you smile back. Why? Because the face communes with the face and has the ability to transfer and to transform something of what that person was to you. Am I speaking to somebody here? So when you bring it to God, God is trying in communion, he's taking aspects of his glory and he wants to glorify us. This is the deepest form of prayer. If you don't believe me, then think about the guy called Moses who went to talk with God. And he said, yes, he prayed. And when he prayed, what happened? It says in Exodus 34 verse 29 that when he came back, he was not aware that his face was radiant. Why? Because he had spoken with the Lord. And you say, well, there are all kinds. Well, maybe he was asking God for things. No, he wasn't asking God for things. Because this is the kind of prayer that he was making with God in Deuteronomy 34 verse 10. No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord did what? You. Face to face. It was in that communion with Moses that the glory of God was transferred. It was transferred. Moses knew, and the people of Israel were told, they knew the ways of God. But Moses knew more than that. Oh, sorry, they saw the acts of God, but Moses knew the ways of God. And somebody would say, ah, yeah, but that's Moses. I mean, look at me. <laughs> I'm not Moses, you know, I'm not Moses. And at this point is where I tell you, ah, ah. You too, you can... No, it's not true. You are not Moses. <laughs> when last did you part the Red Sea? When? Come on, let's, let's respect ourselves. So, well, no matter what your parents told you growing up about you can do anything. No, you can't. You are not Moses. And then at that point, you're thinking, well, if I'm not Moses, then why should I expect that this thing will happen to me? Let me say, not only would this happen to you, can I say that if you did push, something greater than Moses' glory can actually happen to you. And this is not just me trying to speak over you and just trying to titillate you. No. This is what the Bible tells us, that we can experience a greater glory than Moses, a glory that comes from the Spirit of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, 8, and 12. Now, if the ministry engraved in letters on stone came with glory, that was the glory that Moses experienced, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Now say the next word with me. Transitory. 
As glorious as it was, Moses' glory was transitory. Why? Because the covenant upon which Moses was able to experience that glory was a fading covenant. But there was another covenant and another ministry that was coming. And he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And then verse 12 says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we who have received that Spirit upon that covenant, we have that hope, we can therefore be very bold. Not because we are greater than Moses, but because we are connected to one that is greater than Moses. I have respect for Moses. One of my biblical heroes. A towering figure. And his glory came as a result of the close relationship that Moses had with God that others did not have. But, 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 as close as Moses was to God in his face-to-face -face communion, there were limits there were limits. Turn to your neighbor and say there are levels to this. There are limits. How do I know there are limits? Because Moses, as close as he was, Moses had two limitations. Moses was a servant of God and Moses was a human being. Moses was a servant of God and Moses was a human being. And those categories still limit your ability to be able to get the close relationship with God. But there was one that was greater than his servant and there was one that was not just a human being. Give me John chapter 1 verse 18. And listen to what John 1 18 says. No one has ever seen God that is in this way, but the one and only say it, that is he's not a servant, who himself is what? That is he's not just a human being and therefore he is in the closest relationship with that is Jesus in other words he's saying there is a communion that Jesus has that exceeds that of Moses and we saw a bit of this because when Jesus became a human being you can say, oh, he was doing that in Trinity, but no. When he became a human being, at some point, he carried his disciples up a mountain in Luke chapter 9 to go and pray. And when he prayed, Jesus says, are you three people, you are knowing me after the flesh. Let me show you a bit of the glory that I have, that Moses did not have. How do I know Moses did not have it? Because Moses eventually came on that mountain. And there was a separation between Moses and Jesus. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to, to a mountain to pray. And verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. In Mark's version, he says his face shone like the sun. There are levels to this. And how does that then affect us? It's because God has mediated that communion in his face. It's now not just communion with the Father, but it's communion with the Son. How do I know that 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6? God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the... Jesus. In the face. To commune with Jesus is to experience that glory. That glory transforms us because in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. He takes something of his and in communion it is being transferred to us so that we are like him. And being like him is ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord. In other words, guys, God is saying that I am happy with the glory you are experiencing now. There is another glory to come. You can experience more of that glory 
in face-to-face -face communion with him. If this seems all too esoteric and too ethereal, please forgive me. Because there are some things that is very difficult to communicate with just mere words. Because we are touching the place of the very divine. But if you need a bit more explanation, if I can help, because if that's the effect, how do we do it? Permit me to explain a little bit, because you're asking, how do I do this communion with God? Okay, first of all, what is communion? Well, first of all, I'll say it's related to this. It is relationship rooted in deep unity. Relationship rooted in deep unity. But if you know anything about unity, especially unity between people, you only really have unity where there is love. Whether it's in your office or all the divisions that come, at the end of the day, you get to the root of it. I couldn't forgive that person. I thought the worst about that person because you don't love the person. But when we are united in love, we are truly united. So if it is a loving union, but it is deep, this is what I would say about communion. It's the product of a deep loving union. It's the product, what comes out of a deep loving union. Union. Let me separate those two. Deep on one side, loving union. Let's talk about loving union. And under this, I want to communicate this to us. The only way you can understand communion with God is first by understanding the communion of God. Can I say that again? The only way you can understand communion with God is first by understanding the communion of God. Communion of God, yes. God communes with God. Because God, though one, is a community. This is the fundamental teaching of the Christian faith. There is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. How does that work? Because listen, perfect communion is not in the Trinity. The Trinity is perfect communion. If it is going to be Three coming together as one, it must mean that there's perfect love because you don't have unity without love. Isn't it true? But if they are perfectly united, it means that it must be perfect love. In other words, God cannot be, if it's perfect love, it can't be that God has love. It must be that God is. Because he's been loving himself from the very beginning. How? This is why we as Christians don't say, when, when you say God is one, we don't say God is one and one person. Because if God is one and one person, who was God loving from the very beginning? He can't then be loved. There are other religions that say that, and that's for them. That's the reason why God is power for them. Your, the, your fundamental relationship with God has to be submission because he's so far away from you. Because God is power, and we must submit. But if God is tripersonal, then God can be loved because he's eternal love. And therefore, the relationship he has with his people is first rooted in what? So God is love. And we see this, how the, the son loves the father, the father loves the son. And you say, well, what, what about the spirit? Well, the spirit is the one that actually unites them in love. The Spirit is the carrier of love between both of them. If you don't believe me, let me give you two verses that show this. When the Son became incarnate, anytime you see the Spirit coming, you hear a declaration of love. So at his baptism, 
Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist had just baptized him. And what happened? It says, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. What comes after? A voice from heaven that says, this is the Son, my Son, whom I also as thinking about the mission that God sent him to do, to speak the words of God. We see this other thing in the third chapter of John, John 33, 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he give, God gives the spirit without limit. What comes next? The father loves the son. The Son and the Father commune in the Spirit in this eternal circle of love and communion. And then you are asking, what does the communion of God then have to do with us? And this, if your mind is not already blown, scatters my own mind. That our God in communion of love invites us into that communion of love of the Godhead. What? Before this sounds heretical, can I show you John chapter 17? Listen to what it says in John 17. Jesus is going to pray. This is the real prayer, Lord's prayer. Because the Lord's prayer, he was, the Lord was actually praying. The other one is a model prayer that was given by the Lord. But he's praying for the unity of his church. And he's going to give a reference point for that unity. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that they may be one. Saying us, that we may be what? One, he prays for not just the unity in this church, but the unity of all Christians. That's what Jesus is praying for. And the reference point of that unity is the communion of God. He says, just as you are in me and I am in you. And then you say, oh, well, well, Pastor Femi, this, this means, this is an inspiration. That is the communion of God is an inspiration for the communion of the saints. He goes one step further. He says, may they also be also be what? In us. What? In other words, this is the invitation. Invitation. And he goes, he says it again. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Go to verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. He wants to give us glory that they may be one as we are one. That's inspiration. But then again, he says, I in them. In other words, the communion of God isn't simply an inspiration for church unity, but an invitation of the church to communion with God. See, God always wanted us to live in Him. He wanted us to be united in Him. That's why prayer is there. Prayer is not just for you to ask God for things. Prayer is for you to seek after God so that you can be this so that you can be in him. Do you remember Acts chapter 17 verse 27? Listen to what it says. God did this so that they could, they would seek after him. Perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. And here is the point of unity. For in him we live and move and have our being. What is the ground upon why we can do this? As some of your poets have said we are what? So we say ah. why 1 John 3, 1 verse 3 to 4 it says, what we have heard we proclaim unto you. It's not just communion with the Father. It says have communion with us. Have fellowship with us. Have koinonia with us. The unity of the 
body, but it then says, for our fellowship is our communion, our koinonia is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. It's the Father, is the Son. And you say, ah, but what about the Holy Spirit? But don't you remember what the Holy Spirit is doing in the communion of God? He's taking the love of the Father to the Son. But if we are now co-heirs with Christ and we are also His children, what do you think the Spirit is doing for us as He's inviting us? Romans 5 verse 5, it says, God's love has been poured out, not into Jesus, but He has been poured out into our hearts through who? So it's the communion of the Father. The communion with the Son. The only reason why you and I have access to the maker of all, despite all our sins, is because of the gracious entry, the gracious way Jesus has given to us so that we can experience the love of God. Did you get that? The grace of Jesus. The love of God. Oh, how do we tie all of that together? Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and what? Communion. Communion with the Father. Communion with the Son. Communion with the Spirit. The communion of God is asking us to commune with God. And I, again, I don't want you to be hysteric because what do you do when you do that? It means that when we come in prayer, there are times we can't just always come in prayer just thinking, what can God do for me? What can God do for me? It says there's something wrong with your relationship with God. There is a different approach. The, the, the great 16th century Carmelite nun, St. Teresa of Avila, said this. She says, the important thing in prayer is not to think much, but to love much. Because when we enter into God's love, even God's power comes from his love. The world teaches us the love of power, but what God gives to us is the power of love. Love comes before power first. And so when you enter into God's presence, as you commune with him, do you know what happens? You are being transformed into glory. So all of a sudden, like I had this week, receiving disappointing news, I could react in unforgiveness. I could react in bitterness. I went to God in communion with him, not asking anything, and all of a sudden, approaching in love, there is an exchange of love. And if there is an exchange of love, there's an exchange of power and in an exchange of power he's giving glory and all of a sudden forgiveness rises up in your heart all of a sudden the bitterness goes away maybe if you are feeling anxious all of a sudden the love and the power of God can move you from a place of being anxious and bring you into faith where there is worry hope rises you didn't ask for hope you didn't ask for faith but that's what the more of God's love we have, the more of his power we experience. More love, more power, more of you in my life. More love. Sing it at the request. More power Sing it as one entry in his presence. More of you in my life. Let's take it one more time. One more love, more power. More love. More power. More power. More of you my life. More love. 
releasing his power in this place. As we face to face in communion with him. In my, we come to worship you. And I will worship you with all of my heart. And I will worship you with our minds, with our minds, with our minds. Oh, with our strength, I will worship in face-to-face communion with him as we receive his glory. about it being deep if I may use some of our marriages we understand this we might for a fair bit of time there's a funny thing that happens it's happened to me I don't know if your marriage is better is better than mine but sometimes I feel schizophrenic because you behave in a total opposite way in a short space of time you see sometimes the person that you said I do too you find that that person enrages you. I don't want to say that you feel like killing the person sometimes, but... And the thing, the reason why you are angry with them is because they put the bottle of water in the wrong place and you've told them times without number. Or if you are subjected to what my poor wife is subjected to, maybe your husband doesn't close the drawers. Maybe he doesn't close the cupboards after almost 14 years and you've told him over and over again. Maybe it is that they don't put the toilet seat down. Maybe it is the way they eat. Their mouth just opens up in a certain way. Maybe it's that they pick their nose. Maybe it's the way they fart. You just say, I will kill you. In your mind, you are asking, you say, who is this person? And the funny thing is that in that instance, as the person has annoyed you, as they came back from home, as the towel was yet again on the bed, and you are just wondering, this person I really don't like, they come and they tell you, I lost my job. And you find yourself that in that instant, deep levels of compassion come towards the person. Or maybe again, as they annoyed you, they came back from work and just said, I got a promotion. And you find that deep levels of joy comes out of you towards that person. One time you are about to say, I could leave you. The other time you are saying, my love, what's going on? Let me explain it to you. The first one is a surface reaction based on a surface connection. As important as closing the drawers, ah, as I tell my wife, it is still a surface thing. And if you see her, you can speak to her on my behalf. I will not mind. 
as important as where you put the bottle, as important as putting down the toilet seat, all of those things, we know it's actually a surface thing because when we met a deeper thing, we changed the way we behaved. One was a surface reaction based on a surface connection. The other one was a deep reaction based on a deep connection. The surface was calling to the surface, but there's another level. Deep calls to deep. So in Psalm 42 verse 7, the psalmist is going through deep anguish. We don't know what it is, but most likely it is when the sons of Korah have gone with David. They've been banished from Jerusalem because Absalom has come to enter. And they wonder, will they see the city of God again? They're in deep anguish. And so their deep is calling out to the deep of God in the roar of his waterfalls. Can I tell you that in deep communion with God, all of a sudden you don't just need words. He is able to connect with what you are going through. Romans chapter 8 tells us, it says that we will have the first fruit of the Spirit. We ourselves do groom. that place of anguish, you know what he does? The next verse tells us. He says, by day, the deep, the depth of his calling out to God's deep, it connects with what we've been talking about when we commune with God. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. That song, is it a prayer? Is it a song? As we are praying, we are singing. As we are singing, we are praying. Because he says, at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. To the God of my life. It was connection in deep anguish, but it was a connection based on somebody who is longing after God. How do I know that? Because of the way the psalm starts. It doesn't start at seven and eight. It starts in one. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. In verse two, it says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? can I go and meet with God in other words guys as we commune with God in this relationship this deep relationship there are connections there and can I say to somebody as you let's come together can I say this because somebody can say how do we do it? how do we do it if already you found it difficult to actually say words you are in the right place because sometimes when we are in deep communion with God, it's not about words. In fact, we don't have the words to say. There is a glory that we experience in communal prayer where we have no words. Every gaze is on the lion and the lamb. As we fix our gaze on him in adoration, we say, every gaze. Every gaze is on the lion and the lamb. But when the glory comes, you find that words aren't enough. Because when the glory comes, there'll be no words to say. Just a chant, just a chant. Oh, there's an experience of glory that words can't contain. When 
Thomas's are among us who say something like, ah, oh, no, this is where you've lost me. God is a God of words. Prayer is a response in words. Have you not heard that God is the word? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God, of course. And then he gave us his words. I agree. But I'm saying the words are set up to commune and there are times when you enter into communion with God, honestly, you just, words can't contain everything. And the truth is, we already know what this experience is like. Perhaps I can give you this extended illustration. It's about 11 years ago, something happened in the city. You see, because what I'm trying to say is this, often, in the deepest moment of experiencing God, when we have no words to say, we, we, we experience, we, we, we express it in body postures, whether we are on the floor, whether we are rolling, we are kneeling, whether our hands are up, or sometimes it's chance. It's chance. Sometimes it's other tongues. This reaction is deeply rational and very human. In fact, can I say that the alternative of being able to use words is actually what isn't very rational because it just shows that you've not experienced that. So in 2012, something happened in the city of Manchester. I was living there at that time. So let me tell you a little bit about Manchester as a city. Manchester, in sporting terms, has two clubs, very big clubs, Manchester United and Manchester City. And in England, one of the ways you show your glory is by winning a trophy. And one of the most important trophies is to be crowned the champions of England. Now, on the last day of the season in 2012, that decision, that um, 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 who was the champion had not yet been decided. There was one more match to play. Manchester City were going to play somewhere. Manchester United were going to play somewhere. All Manchester City needed was to match Manchester United's result and they will be champions. If Manchester City lost and United lost, Man City will be champions. If Manchester City drew and United drew, Man City will be champions. If Manchester City won, then there's even no need to figure out what United were going to do. Why was this important? Ah, if you grew up as a Man City fan, you would think that there was a curse upon you. This is how they felt. Seriously. At that point, Manchester United were the defending champions. Manchester United had won 19 league championships. And City had won two. The last one was in 1976. The first one was in 1930-something. So you can imagine, it's like the younger brother that everybody lost the older brother and you can never meet up. It was even worse. They used to mock them. Many times, Manchester United people didn't even care about Manchester City. When they said there was a rivalry, they said rivalry assumed some kind of equality. Do you know what the Manchester United manager, their greatest manager, Alex Ferguson, once said about Manchester City? He called them the noisy neighbors. You know, there's a thing, when your enemy says something bad about you, you can feel bad, but when the thing they say about you is true, ah, it's even pains more. 
So you can imagine how every Manchester City fan was thinking about this final match. The good thing was they got the team they would have wanted to play and where they would have wanted to play. They got a team in the bottom three. They were called Queen's Park Rangers. And they were playing at Manchester City's ground. Manchester United, on the other hand, were playing away from their own ground in a team called Sunderland. Nothing could go wrong, could it? <laughs> so the day came. And after the day came, when the match started, everything was going according to plan. Manchester City scores first. 1-0. United have not even scored. And it keeps going on like that and like that until we get to the halftime. And halftime, Manchester City 1-0. Manchester United 0-0. It looks like the curse has been lifted. Apple. Apple said, think different. So the second half starts. And as it's going on, all of a sudden, maybe there was a bit of complacency. QPR scores Manchester City. Ah, 1-1. One, one. Oh, no, no, no. But we still have enough time. In fact, there is hope. QPR get a man sent off. I'm sure we will score again. Hey, what happened? Man, QPR scored again. It's 2-1. Oh, the cross is coming. It's coming. They find out United has now scored. Ah. And it's getting to the 90th minute. And now United are going to have 20. And we'll have 2. If your mathematics was not very good, let me help you. It means they are 10 times greater than us. How do you think the Manchester City supporter felt at that point? If you ask them the anguish they were going through, do you think they could explain it in words? No. This is how they would have explained it. out by Kenny. Every time that ball runs loose inside the box, there just isn't a blue shirt to meet it. It's excruciating. But it's just getting too much for some fans. You can't keep it in. There's pain that words cannot describe. That tells you a whole lot more than words. The thing came and we still messed it up. Just despair. No words. So as we enter the final minutes, United game is ended. 1-0. Looks like they're going to be champions. And as Man City fans are beginning to leave the stadium, Contemplating what could have been. Hey, 90 second minutes. They score back. 2-2. Two -two, equalized. It's a good consolation. At least we didn't lose. But isn't that the typical story of Manchester City? That whenever we are at the jaws of glory, we are able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. The cause is there. They were only left with a feeling of consolation. Of what may have been. No more time left. What did you say? The ball was sent up. Balotelli oh, controls it. And when he controls it, he tees it up. Balotelli. For Aguero, who is the highest goal scorer. This point, you see, the eyes of everyone gets wider. And then wider. 
every Manchester City supporter's life in less than a split second, although it feels like an eternity, it flashes before them as they remember the mockery, they remember the shame, they remember the battles, they remember the relegation, they remember the anguish, and then... What you are going to see next is scenes of glory that cannot be described with words because words were not made for them. It's bedlam, an eruption of joy unspeakable. It's an explosion from the deepest longings of people who have waited so long for the glory they thought would always elude them. It's the feeling of absolute communion with the club and supporters that you love. Whilst I fully intend to inflict agony on every Manchester United supporter, listen to what I'm going to say here. When people, listen to me, when people experience the glory of a footballing soap opera play out, they aren't expected to irrationally, irrationally respond with words. And therefore, when the glory of the presence of the living God is being experienced by his people in communion with him, please don't expect them. Don't expect me. I don't expect you to irrationally respond with rational words. For there are no words to say when the glory comes into his temple. There will be no words to say. When the glory comes. Now let us commune with our Father. As we look at Him face to face. Oh, it's greater than Manchester City. It is the very living God who calls us into His presence. Let your heart reach out to Him. Let your love go out to Him. It doesn't matter what you're saying. Even if you're not saying anything, He sees your heart. Commune with Him. Commune with Him. Commune with Him. experience that you say no I don't understand no ask God for the grace to experience what others are experiencing it's not the time to argue what can we not when we don't have words what are chants no the chants are demonstrating the inability of our words to to communicate what we feel when we're in that sense of glory ask for the grace so that you can behave with clear rationality and respond with a chant or a body posture or that demonstrates what you have just encountered, the reality of the love that you are truly designed for. Yes, speak to him. His love is here. His love is there. Tell him. Show him. Words don't matter at some point. Sometimes it's just a charm that comes from the spirit.
Sometimes it's just a vowel that we say to him. It's not that the doctrine isn't important, but that the doctrine has brought us to its full course. The doctrine is like a chauffeur that brings us to the place that we are meant to go. We know that we can come into access with him because Jesus has made a way with our Father. But now that we are in communion with him, we cannot say anything. We can just express ourselves. We can just chant and just say, that Lord, we love you. And he comes with our words, but not words that we can follow. fellowship of his people united with one voice united in the same experience united in the same sight of glory ah, as we see his loving face This is a foretaste of what we will have in his kingdom. 
He says that in that day in the new Jerusalem, he said there will be no more curse and his servants will be there. That they, they will be there with the lamb and the, God, the one on the throne will be in the center of it on the throne. And he said they shall see his face. Here's how I want to end. You see, because God's sacred presence can make wordless communication sacred, we're able to communicate and commune with God beyond words spiritually as we just did. But Madonna was also right. There is something about the material world the presence of God can make this time and this place sacred, but it can also make mere matters sacred as well. Because those you are in deepest fellowship with, you know one of the things you do is something very simple. You eat with them. David said that my close friend, the one whom I trust, who broke bread with me. This is why when you come through the Old Testament, there's always something about a meal with God. He said when the old covenant was being ratified, they saw God and they ate. He said when the new, te the, 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 the new temple was being dedicated, he said the priests in the presence of God, they ate and they drank. He says in anticipation of the final temple, the prince shall eat and drink in the presence of God. So when Jesus comes to demonstrate his death, and resurrection, he says, you can not only just commune with God beyond words spiritually, you can commune with God beyond words materially. And so that's why he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not what? A communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break Hallelujah. This is not just an ordinary meal. He says it's a communion of the body of Christ. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City